This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Good evening and welcome to the May 19th edition of Global Dialogue, your World Affairs Council's international speakers program. Tonight we have a special program examining the U.S. Foreign Service and American diplomacy. The idea for our program came from a similar panel held two weeks ago by the Dallas-Fort Worth Council as part of the nationwide marathon of global affairs awareness webinars and digital events organized by our friends at the World Affairs Councils of America. Every week we circulate a list of network-wide virtual programs that you're welcome to attend. So I suggest you subscribe to our newsletter at tnwac.org for that and more. While I'm on housekeeping notes, let me ask that you consider a donation to the World Affairs Council at tnwac.org donate. We hope you appreciate the value of what we do to bring the world to your community. Before we begin our discussion of the Foreign Service, I'd like to offer my gratitude to the thousands of men and women who have gone abroad to represent America, often traveling in harm's way. In fact, our Academic World Quest program, the Education Outreach Program at our World Affairs Council, has been named in honor of Ann Smettinghoff, a young Foreign Service officer lost in the line of duty in Afghanistan while delivering supplies to remote schools. We're honored to be able to uh, note that uh, she served uh, America uh, for all of us. To lead you in our conversation on American diplomacy tonight is a great panel of distinguished speakers. Their careers and accomplishments are many and too numerous to mention them all here. So check the website for more complete biographies, but allow me to give you a brief introduction. With us tonight from the Outer Banks of North Carolina is Ambassador Marcy, Marcy Rees, where she says it's currently storming. Ambassador Marcy Rees is a senior fellow with the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and senior advisor at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. Her 37-year career in the U.S. Foreign Service includes service as U.S. Ambassador to Albania from 2004 to 2007, U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria from 2012 to 15, the 2010 New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty START negotiating team, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs, Minister Counselor for Political Military Affairs in Baghdad from 2007 to 2008, Head of the U.S. Office Pristina Kosovo, 2003 to 2004, Director of the State Department's Office of United Nations Political Affairs, 2001 to 2003, Counselor in the U.S. Embassy in London, and Service in the European Union, Turkey, and Dominican Republic missions. Dr. Thomas Schwartz is a professor of history, professor of political science, and professor of European studies at Vanderbilt University. He is a historian of the foreign relations of the United States with related interests in modern European history and the history of international relations. Professor Schwartz has held fellowships from the Social Science Research Council, the German Historical Society, the Norwegian Nobel Institute, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the Center for the Study of European Integration. He has served as president of the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations. He served on the United States Department of State's Historical Advisory Committee as the representative of the Organization of American Historians from 2005 to 2008. Ambassador Charles Dick Bowers entered the U.S. Foreign Service in 1967. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to Bolivia from 1991 through 1994. During that time, the American Embassy in Bolivia, uh, located in La Paz, was the largest and most complex U.S. Embassy in South America. Ambassador Bowers grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and attended the University of California, Berkeley. From 1961 to 1964, he served in the U.S. Army as a Russian linguist in West Berlin at the height of the Cold War. As a career member of the U.S. Diplomatic Corps, Ambassador Bowers served in the U.S. Embassies in Panama, Poland, Singapore, Germany, and Bolivia. He retired from the Foreign Service in 1995. Ambassador Bowers has been a board member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council since 2012. 
Article two, section two of the US Constitution authorized the president to appoint by and with the advice and consent of the Senate ambassadors and other public ministers and consuls. So the United States diplomatic corps has a long and storied history stretching back to the birth of the Republic. The United States Foreign Service is the primary personnel system used by the diplomatic service of the United States federal government under the aegis of the United States Department of State. It consists of over 13,000 professionals carrying out the foreign policy of the United States and aiding US citizens abroad. The Foreign Service Act of 1980 is the most recent major legislative reform of the Foreign Service. Our format this evening is to have opening remarks from Ambassador Rees, followed by additional context from professional, Professor Schwartz and then Ambassador Bowers. We look forward to your questions and comments and ask that you start adding them to the Q&A queue at the bottom of your screen as soon as you're ready. The Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard Kennedy Schools Belfer Center has launched a new initiative, the American Diplomacy Project, a foreign service for the 21st century. The goal of the American Diplomacy Project is to produce a nonpartisan report on how the White House, both parties of Congress, the State Department leadership, and concerned citizens can build a foreign service for the next half century. The report will be released after the November US presidential election. Ambassador Marcy Rees is among a small group of prominent American diplomats leading that effort, and we thank her for joining us today. Ambassador Rees. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for that very kind introduction. And thank you to the World Affairs Council for inviting me to be with you this evening. I wish I were actually in Nashville. Uh, that, I've never been there, uh, and that would be a lot of fun. But anyway, virtual is what we've got. Um, we, the way we think of diplomacy is as America's first line of defense in a very highly competitive and sometimes dangerous world. We have diplomats in over 280 embassies and consulates and in the State Department in Washington. They have special expertise in areas of the world and in functional things like environmental science and arms control and all matters that come before our diplomats at home and abroad. And they use that expertise for the protection of Americans and for advancing American interests. As Pat mentioned, I spent 37 years uh, in the American Foreign Service and they were really wonderful years. By the way, my husband was also a serving Foreign Service officer, and we were one of the early, what the State Department calls tandem couples. And uh, serving in eight different countries, we raised two children, they're adults now, uh, all of who, for whom I think uh, traveling the world in the service of their country was a very special experience. And I assume that uh, Ambassador Bowers feels the same way. About, about his time in the Foreign Service. So first I'm gonna talk about why we undertook this project. Today, diplomacy itself and the Foreign Service are facing some profound challenges. The Foreign Service is under-resourced, understaffed, and struggles with legacy structures and, and technology. It matters because uh, the United States is facing increasingly more challenging and complex world. The coronavirus is just one example of the type of crisis that can flow over borders and engage diplomats in countries all over the world. And in addition to the pandemic, the, consonant, the consequent economic crisis is already going global, global, excuse me, and I imagine that we are going to be dealing with it for several years to come. One way the diplomatic service has been weakened is its gradual politicization over multiple administrations and years. At the moment, we have the highest number of politically appointed as opposed to career ambassadors that we've had in 60 years. 
In both Republican and Democratic administrations, there are increasingly no, an increasing number of policy positions in the State Department are also held by people who, have, who are brought in from the outside. Um, one consequence, one obvious consequence of this is that the leadership of the country doesn't benefit from the advice of the careerists, the people who have all this expert, accumulated expertise. So how did this happen? Since 9-11 and through successive administrations, the focus of US foreign policy and uh, and national resources were devoted to the war on terrorism. And this, this tilted our, our effort quite appropriately toward the military and toward the intelligence community. This was a necessity. A strong military uh, is essential for diplomacy, which often has to be backed up by force. But as former Secretary of Defense Mattis said, I love this quote, to successfully protect American interests, both Republican and Democratic administrations need to balance intimidation, by which he meant military might, with inspiration, by which he meant diplomacy. So about two years ago, um, three of our most distinguished former diplomats became very concerned about the state of the Foreign Service, and they launched the American Diplomacy Project at Harvard, which uh, Pat has, has described. Uh, they secured donations from, from uh, some private citizens, and also uh, we've been working with the Cox Foundation, which has for a long time been a wonderful supporter of the Foreign Service. And I, about a year later, I joined the project to act as the executive director. We plan to undertake a major nonpartisan study of how to rebuild and modernize the American Foreign Service. Our plan is to consult as many people as possible, not just current and former officials of whom we have already consulted many, but also people in business, in tech, academics, diplomats from other countries, and so on. The idea is to cast the net wide and eventually to produce some, a report which will have some specific recommendations of how to rebuild and modernize the Foreign Service. At the, at the same time, we really hope to spark a national discussion of how to make the state and the Foreign Service the strongest possible institutions to defend American values and interests in the decades ahead. The goal is a report with practical, achievable recommendations to give our diplomats the capabilities, the skills, and the resources that they need in today's world. Well, we know we have to be thinking in bold terms. One of the first things we did was to look at the history of America's diplomatic service. And I, I, I don't want to step on Professor Schwartz here, um, but I will say that what we learned was that our service has undertaken its biggest changes in response to world events. The Foreign Service really was first formally established in 1924 with the Rogers Act after World War I showed that we needed uh, much more than a small group of mostly random politically appointed ministers. There were no ambassadors at that time who actually didn't even get a salary and some professional consuls. After World War II, a second piece of major legislation further profes professionalized the service. And in 1980, 40 years ago, America emerged from the Vietnam War and began coping with the challenges posed by the Cold War. And at that time, there was a third major piece of legislation which brought us the Senior Foreign Service and other very important changes uh, in the structure. 
of the service and of the State Department. Though there have been many, many studies, there have been no major pieces of legislation since then, then, which is now 40 years ago. The, as we know, the global environment today is shaped by many new challenges. There's the rise of China, revanchist Russia, instability in the Middle East, threats from terrorists, extremists, lar the largest refugee crisis since 1945, and now, and now Corona. And because of these changes in the, in the geopolitical situation, but also new threats, cyber, um, climate change, and even new frontiers, the Arctic space, we need to think strategically about how to give the United States the best possible diplomatic representation. So our project has three phases. The first is research and gathering of information. Second would be reflection on, on what we've learned. And finally, writing and releasing our, our report, which I mentioned will be uh, nonpartisan and will be sometime after the election in November. Our original intent for the first phase has been to organize events in different parts of the United States in order to get diverse views. A tech in a way makes that easier. We've had six workshops and two town hall style meetings so far, one in Dallas, as was mentioned, and now in Nashville. The results have really exceeded expectations. Many interesting questions and ideas. For example, many have mentioned the need for new communication strategies, given the important role of social media today. We, those of us who are in the Foreign Service can all remember a time when you when you arrived in a new country and you had to pay a courtesy call on all of the officials with whom you would be communicating. And it was quite a formal event. And, and thereafter, the, your arrival at the foreign ministry was also a, a fairly formal event, well, arranged well in advance and so on. Nowadays, we get messages by text from foreign officials. We, uh, we email documents. It's a it's a quite a different way of conducting diplomacy. We've heard a lot about um, how to counter fake news and very very aggressive disinformation campaigns, often a part of what we have termed asymmetrical asymmetrical warfare. And we have to think about what role our diplomats should play in countering that. Others have mentioned the need for uh, more professional and tech education for our diplomats, more resources, and more modern equipment. In the area of education, the military actually provides an example where uh, officers are expected to spend a certain amount of their career in, in, education, in the pursuit of education. And uh, that is something which we admire. We participate in sometimes. That, um, we are lucky to be able to attend, for example, the National War College. But we really need a rethink of ed the education that we provide our Foreign Service officers. So I'm looking forward to hearing ideas from my colleagues here on the panel tonight but especially from you, the listeners. The World Affairs Councils prevent, present a wonderful opportunity for us to engage with citizens outside of Washington, D.C., who are knowledgeable about and interested in foreign policy. And so I'm very interested to hear your ideas and views. I appreciate very much this opportunity to be with you this evening, and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you, uh, Ambassador. We uh, appreciate your comments and your being with us tonight. Uh, next, we're going to move on to uh, Dr. Thomas Schwartz and 
And uh, Professor Schwartz, I failed to mention in the uh, introductions that uh, we have you to thank for moderating uh, ter many terrific panels that we've held with uh, uh, Ambassador Chris Hill, Ambassador Samantha Power, and, and others. So uh, we thank you for your service to the World Affairs Council in that capacity and, and tonight. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I applaud this effort to discuss these issues. Um, I want to, uh, Pat's asked me to stay at five minutes, so I'm going to try to keep to that um, and uh, uh, suggest some historical perspective on some of what we're facing here. Um, I wanted to start out by saying that in, in doing a little bit of background reading, one of the things that I'm struck with is a, is a paradox in American history. On the one hand, um, the United States has, has been from its founding, and Pat mentioned that at the beginning, uh, recognizing a need to connect with the rest of the world. Uh, early on in our history, a lot of that had to do with wanting to trade with many other countries and uh, being, believing that that would be a, a very good way to interact. This paradox of the need to do this with what is a chronic and frequent uh, disdain for a professional core of diplomats um, that goes back deep in our history and uh, both a disdain and then also a will unwillingness to fund adequately or to supply or to support adequately uh, a real foreign, a professional foreign service. Um, there, some of that has to do with a certain anti-elitism in American history. Early in American history, there was this ideal of Republican simplicity and uh, uh, a, uh, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, viewed professional diplomats and uh, the displays connected to their work as the pest of peace in the world of the world. Um, very dismissive toward professional diplomats, uh, despite the fact that many of the founding fathers were very cosmopolitan and had spent time abroad and were very familiar. Uh, so that the what the ambassador described as the professionalization of the Foreign Service that took place only after World War I does capture the fact that for most of the 19th century, uh, things were a lot worse in terms of our, we had a lot more political, most of the appointments abroad were political, and we had some terrible diplomats, uh, there were occasionally good ones, but some pretty awful um, political appointees, so that uh, this is something that has to be kept in mind, that this was a, we didn't get our first ambassador uh, appointed, and I actually wanted to check this. The first ambassador to be appointed to Britain wasn't until the uh, 1890s, and then, even then uh, we didn't have very much in the way of uh, real diplomatic representation. And it was really World War One and the crisis that brought the United States to world leadership and the 1924 Rogers Act creating a foreign service after World War One, And that foreign service had some quite distinguished members. Uh, one of them was George Kennan, uh, particularly, who would be the uh, the intellect, uh, or at least the, the person who defined American foreign policy after World War II with the containment doctrine. Um, but again, after World War One, part of the interest with foreign service had to do with America's enormous economic power and the fact that the United States was so important economically to the rest of the world. And this is something also that has been raised about this rethinking of the professional of the foreign service today is that it has to play a greater role in American uh, trade and other issues um, as well. Um, after World War II, of course, the Foreign Service would expand enormously. It didn't escape a great deal of suspicion. Uh, one should recall that Joe McCarthy took a, a, an axe to the Foreign Service, uh, the, the striped pants diplomats, many of whom were seen as, as somehow disloyal. And, and so there was also a crisis there. Even though between 1940 and 1960, the Foreign Service uh, or the State Department went from some 2,000 employees to almost 13,000, which is almost where it is today, or at least in some ways where it is today. Um, uh, there was, of course, a great work in the 1950s called The Ugly American, which was very critical of American Foreign Service and the idea that American Foreign Service didn't get out and know the people and that it was uh, uh, it was a, an elitist core that didn't really interact. and that brought real change in some ways uh, to the State Department and to other concerns, um, and did bring uh, a very, very uh, talented and professional foreign service which served very effectively during the Cold War. Um, I want to uh, keep to my five minutes, but I want to recall the fact that after the end of the Cold War, 
uh, there was a similar phenomenon. The State Department actually put on a series of events around the country. I actually participated in one in Nashville in 1996, where they were trying to encourage interest in the Foreign Service in the State Department. They had suffered greatly in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War. Um, there was actually a New York Times story that I remember because it appeared shortly before 9-11, which talked about the decline of the Foreign Service and the fact that young people did not want to join the Foreign Service were going into private companies and the rest. 9-11 actually reversed that to a certain extent. It, it did lead to a, a, a recruitment by the uh, Foreign Service, of course, much of that toward Iraq and Afghanistan eventually. Uh, but I do think now we're coming back to something that happened after the end of the Cold War with the lack of a, a foreign policy consensus has led to a real crisis in thinking about the Foreign Service, as well as the problem of our own domestic politics and the concept of America first really being disdainful of this diplomacy and the Foreign Service. And so I think the Harvard Project comes along at an extremely important time in our history and hopefully will have a, an impact in its bipartisan uh, character and the types of recommendations it will make. So I'll stop there. Well, that's uh, that's terrific. It's it's awful tempting uh, not to extend your remarks, so we can hear more about the scoundrels of the 19th century. Uh, I'll but... be happy to give you a couple of minutes, Tom. <laughs> you you were you were getting very enthusiastic about that. I, I really want to hear the rest. I guess we'll have to enroll in your class at Vanderbilt for, for any of us who could get in. Um, Good overview. Terrific. Well, uh, we'll hand it off to Ambassador uh, Dick Bowers, who is my uh, co-host in, in the afternoon on Tuesdays with something we call the Global News Review. And, and he bowed out today to, uh, to take the seat tonight. So uh, we'll look forward to him being back. We haven't quite achieved uh, the level of uh, car talk uh, commentators for those, <laughs> those who are- We're uh, working on it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure if you're click or clack, but go ahead, Dick. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Pat, and thank you for all that you do for the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I mean, if, if we have a spark plug that makes us limp along, Pat is it. And he puts these things together and he gets old retired people like me to come out and try to talk a little bit about what's going on. I am a very proud retired career U.S. Foreign Service officer. The my career was uh, fascinating, interesting, fulfilling. Uh, there were ups and there were downs. Uh, it's very stressful to be a foreign service officer on families because when you go abroad, the family most of the time goes with you. And so my kids grew up in foreign cultures and foreign languages, um, and they were enriched by that. And I, I kind of like to think that, you know, the, the Foreign Service is kind of like the, the neighborhood where there's always somebody in the neighborhood that looks out for everybody else and that is making sure that everything works right. We are in the world. We have to deal with the world. And there are forces out there that we cannot control by ourselves. And if nothing is more clear than the COVID-19 pandemic, the virus does not know any boundaries and it will come and get you. The environmental issues that we will face, we will have to deal with. The political storms that are coming and going, such as populism and religious zealotry, we have to deal with these. We cannot seal ourselves off from the world. So the question for me is, how do we deal with them? And I like the National Foot -like Football League analogy. We can put a sandlot scrub team of just pulling people in and say, oh, you got the big guy, you go play center, right? And, and you, do, you look like you're fast, go, go, go play an end. Or we can try to put together a professional, highly capable team. And the Foreign Service Act of uh, 1980 really pushed to do that. And it created a structure where we said, we have a number of things we have to do. We have to engage politically with these people around the world. We have to engage economically. How do we sell more Purdue chickens in China? How do we export cars to Mexico? Americans like to travel. Americans travel sometimes get into trouble. How do we take care of them overseas? 
I lost my passport. What do I do? I want to marry this beautiful woman that I met in Germany. What do I do? All those kinds of things. The flag goes up every morning on an American embassy, one of those 280 consulates and embassies around the world that Ambassador Reese mentioned. Somebody has to make that happen. I would argue that the American people would be best served by getting the best, biggest, strongest, most capable team and putting it together to go out and deal with the world. That means people who know the languages, the cultures, the histories, the religions of all of the countries in the world. I firmly believe after having visited over 100 countries and lived in several dozen, that you cannot understand another people or another culture if you don't dig into their language and dig into their history and dig into their culture. So my take on this is the American people need that first line of defense. When the Foreign Service doesn't do its job right, often we have to send in the military. When it does, you get a brokered agreement. It may not be perfect, but at least people aren't killing each other. Well, I think that's my five minutes, even if it only took four. Terrific. Thank you, uh, Ambassador. That was uh, succinct. Um, we, we appreciate everyone's comments. Uh, Ambassador Rees, let me uh, ask you a question as, as we wait for uh, some more questions from the audience to accumulate. And I invite uh, everyone here to, uh, to submit a question. Uh, just uh, roll over the, the bottom panel there, and you'll see the Q&A uh, box where you can put your question. Uh, but Ambassador, you, you said that uh, that you and your colleagues have been working on this project uh, and have been already talking to people, uh, professionals in the field. Uh, what what would you consider to be the top couple of issues that uh, are foremost on people's mind? There's there's a, a host of things about the Foreign Service that I'm sure uh, you're looking into as, in terms of recommendations for a Foreign Service for the next half century, but what are the, the top couple of concerns? Um, well, we actually are, um, we are uh, listening to so many people, it's a little bit hard to categorize them at, at an early stage, but um, let me talk about the word professionalization for a minute, um, because a lot of people have focused on that. Of course, we consider ourselves professionals, uh, but what they talk what they mean when they say professionalization i think is that we should be providing education at every level for our foreign service officers from the time they arrive through um, the mid ranks of their career and if they become seniors at that level as well um, colin powell when he became secretary said, well, you provide training, but you don't provide education. We, for most of our officers, have only really gotten language training or perhaps a bit of area studies, um, some short uh, couple of weeks when they became mid-level officers, maybe another couple of weeks when they became seniors. But I think people, um, one of the issues that people have brought up is that and, and our institute has, been, has um, been thinking about this and working on it for a while, is that we need a more comprehensive plan for training our diplomats, especially in light of all of these very specialized problems that uh, come up in the world. Go ahead, Dick. Let me just jump in on this, because I, I, this is, I'm with you, Ambassador Reese. It's one of my pet peeves. I, my went through my whole career and never really had any educational kind of training. I got language training, a little bit of Spanish because I'd known some Spanish. I uh, got my Russian turned into Polish, right? But the time that I was ready to go to what was now or what still is, I think, the senior seminary, they canceled it. They didn't have it for a number of years. So we don't try and train nearly like the military does. And I don't see how we can rely on sort of a sandlot teams, hoping that the person has the skills they need. And, and back to your point, uh, Ambassador Reese, that, that some of the problems we're dealing with today are so highly 
technical and convoluted. We need to have people who are steeped in those kinds of issues to be able to deal with them. Um, who is the expert in the State Department on viruses? Do we have one? Should we have one? Right? Uh, there are all kinds of things like that out there. But the part of the big problem is State Department has for a long time been uh, a political dumping ground, if you will, for both good people and bad people. And the president has a relationship with the Secretary of State and the better that relationship, like Ronald Reagan and, and Jim Baker, uh, the stronger the State Department is. We don't have the counterpart to the military of a joint chiefs of state. And we have a political appointee who comes into the State Department to be the Secretary of State. I think one time Larry Eagleburger served for a while. Uh, but other than that, these have all been outsiders that come in. Who is it in the State Department who has the job to say, I am responsible for ensuring that this institution improves on my watch and is ready to serve the people of the United States and the next president down the road. We have a director general of the Foreign Service, but that basically is kind of a personnel management issue, right? I appreciate your thoughts there, Ambassador Reese. Well, um, I agree with you that we need uh, we need some thinking about the institution. It, it used to be the case, I'm, I'm talking um, 25 years ago, that um, the undersecretary for political affairs was the highest level position that usually a foreign service officer reached, but it was always a foreign service officer. But e even that position over the years since then has sometimes been given to an outsider, not always to a foreign service officer anymore. So one thing that happens is we lack, we lack continuity. We lack people who are there for enough time to look over the entire institution and say, this is what we need. So um, that's a, that's a thought, that's something that we'll need to give some, some serious thought to. I, one idea that's popped up is, um, is uh, that we ought to use people like us, Pastor Bauer. <laughs> that there ought to be uh, people who are already retired from the Foreign Service, um, yeah. Foreign Service Justice, who, um, who provide some, some consultation and, and backing for the Foreign Service. Well, Pat, you, you, know, you, you came out of the Navy. So all the military services have branches. You're, if you're in the Army, you're an artillery guy, or an infantry guy, or whatever it is. For much of its history, the Foreign Service didn't have branches. And that came in with the 1980, or in the 70s, when we started something called the cone system. And basically, we said there are kind of four generic types of Foreign Service officers we need. We need political officers who deal with politics and governments. We need economic officers who deal with the economic issues and fiscal affairs. We need consular officers who deal with American citizens overseas, but also manage the visa issuance process. And then we need some management people to say, all right, where are all these people gonna live and work and how do we keep them safe? And where do, you know, how does all this work? We also had, something called the Foreign Commercial Service, which still exists, and United States Information Agency. These agencies have stood alone, independent sometimes, and then enfolded in the states sometimes. So I think one of the things we really need to do is figure out what are the career functions that we have. When I came in the Foreign Service, almost everybody wanted to be a political officer. And it was the failed political officers that were given the job to go work as consuls. That should stop because there's nothing worse than having a guy who wants to be a political officer being forced to deal with 150 visa applicants every day. So it's an interesting management cluster that we have to come to grips with. And many of the senior foreign service leaders in this foreign service 
come up through the ranks on the political side. So there's not a lot of that hardcore, long-term managerial expertise that you'll see at the very top. Yeah, uh, well, um, I'm, I'm gonna ask Tom to comment about the uh, introduction along the way of political appointees as, uh, as ambassadors to various posts. And, and I think that's, that's a common lament that I hear from uh, diplomats that I talk to that uh, career foreign service officers are excluded from serving in certain posts because they're not political appointees. Uh, but before uh, I, I'll mention that, uh, yeah, in, in the, uh, the military services, we obviously are very, very specialized. I started out as submariner and went on uh, to surface ships and then intelligence. And along the way, uh, there was professional military training, uh, education programs, and I, I think uh, Ambassador Reese mentioned that that was one of the concerns of the uh, of the project is looking at the professionalization and the education um, of uh, of the services. We we both had the privilege of working for General Colin Powell, and um, uh, I I understand that. Uh, when he arrived at the State Department, uh, one of the first things he noticed was that uh, not everybody had a computer, and and that was the first order of business was to to automate the State Department. So, at least at least he uh, carried something over from the Pentagon. Uh, uh, Tom, do you have any comments about the uh, uh, the political versus uh, career foreign service or professionalization of the service? Well, it, it's, it's certainly not a new problem in the sense that political appointees um, have always uh, been an issue. Uh, it is part of the tension between presidents who want to put their own stamp on foreign policy and want to reward their supporters and also want to carry out specific objectives uh, against the State Department, which in some ways is kind of uh, trying to be a more permanent uh, representative of the United States and has a less of a uh, is less interested particularly in forwarding the political ambitions of each president as they come along. So there is a, there's an inherent tension, um, which has become much more acute in the post-Cold War years, and particularly in the last few years, as foreign policy has shifted radically between administrations. And so the, the continuities that used to be uh, sort of key, particularly during the Cold War, where uh, there was less of a, a shift with each administration, now you get this much more directly and you get political people coming in who, are, of course, are trying to serve the interests of their president and their party and, and want uh, to push uh, particular objectives. And so this has become, I think, um, something that I think is weakening the, uh, the, the professionalization of the Foreign Service and has uh, erupted in a few cases more recently, but also has been, it, it been a chronic problem over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Let me uh, shift to uh, a question from uh, Campbell Lehman, uh, one of our academic WorldQuest students who's a, a regular on our webinars. And, and thanks, uh, Campbell, for uh, your question. Uh, I mentioned the automation at uh, the State Department. And, and her question is, uh, do you think the effectiveness of diplomacy has been reduced since online communications became more prominent? And uh, looking back at, at the Navy, we used to sail off with uh, with our orders to to set forth, and and we'd come back and report on, you know, that this might be akin to the scoundrels of the 19th century, but uh, in that time frame, and and I suspect it was uh, a similar experience um, among diplomats. They were they were sent off to the far corners of the earth, and and they did what they were they were told to do, and now you have somebody looking over your shoulder. So, uh, Ambassador Reese, is is that uh, something that uh, you know, it, it's it's ubiquitous and we have to live with it, but um, has diplomacy be, been watered down because uh, the, the ship is being steered from foggy bottom? No, I, I don't think so, actually. We, by the way, we still do carry with us a, a letter from the President of the United States with our specific instructions. Um, no, I, I think it just means that diplomacy moves faster. And uh, because there is so much information, it shifts a little bit uh, the responsibility of the reporting officers in the field to the to headquarters back at home. Because headquarters back at home is getting all this information from television, from the internet, and so on. And so, you don't, you don't have to 
report events as they happen because they are probably being reported faster than you can. But what Washington relies on our embassies for is putting whatever it is that is happening into context and using their expertise, their knowledge of the language, the things that we've been talking about so to interpret what is happening and to provide Washington with some idea of what the impact is going to be on Americans and, upon, and on, on the United States. And, and uh, in, in the current situation, that, that just means that you have to take in more information and move faster. And it also means that you have to be able to use those tools yourself. If you're an ambassador these days, you almost most ambassadors have a Facebook page and uh, make videos to communicate, send text messages. And uh, if you are not able to use all of those tools, you really, you really can't effectively represent in today's world. For sure. And just as an aside, the, uh, the WikiLeaks phenomenon, has that uh, impacted uh, diplomacy, the, the uh, willingness to put on, on electronic paper the, uh, the views of uh, this or that ambassador back to the State Department? Are, are people more concerned about security after WikiLeaks? Yes, uh, of course. Um, there is and, and less likely to be... Um, as uh, as honest in, in writing as they would have been previously? I, perhaps that occurred in the immediate aftermath. Uh, there was so much shock at, at what had happened and and there were um, there were specific um, consequences. But I think um, over time, I think we I think everyone recognizes that you you need to be able to tell Washington and your colleagues, you need to be able to give them that, that real-time, honest, uh, frank, expert explanation of what's going on. And uh, as, as you probably experienced in some of your other forums, we, we have fewer questions about uh, uh, the project on American diplomacy and, and questions about in individuals' concerns about uh, foreign service uh, assignments and so forth. We have a question from uh, Christopher Moritz, who uh, is a Belmont uh, uh, MBA alum, and, and just so you know, Ambassador, our World Affairs Council is hosted at beautiful Belmont University, so we're thankful to them for, uh, for their partnership with us. But Christopher uh, has uh, recently passed the Foreign Service Officer Assessment he is waiting on a security clearance um, and the registry to uh, to get uh, moving forward. And he asks if uh, he should anticipate some uh, processes, uh, process difficulties getting on board in view of COVID-19, the fiscal year changeover, and the presidential election. How how do those things impact somebody getting into the pipeline? Well, um, first of all, congratulations, Christopher. <laughs> you have. Uh, You've come through a very demanding selection process, and um, you deserve kudos for that. Uh, actually, we had some good news recently that um, there is going to be um, a, a new class of Foreign Service officers coming on board now very soon, and uh, they will get some of their training virtually, but uh, it's going to proceed as planned. So uh, that is that is good news. And uh, so I think um, if in the face of the con uh, coronavirus, um, our institution and our Foreign Service Institute are able to onboard a new class, then it's hard to think of any other, any other obstacle that would keep them from doing it uh, in the future. While his question was in the queue, I went back to him and asked if he had uh, something about suggestions for the project. And he said he didn't uh, yet have enough knowledge, but he, he did make the comment that he would like to see a plan that can survive five years in Washington, D.C. without getting changed. So there's, <laughs> there's that. We have a question from an anonymous attendee who asks, uh, do you consider the oceans as part of the purview of the diplomatic corps? The oceans? Well, freedom, freedom of the seas uh, is certainly a principle that we support. Um, yes. 
um, we consider the oceans to be part of uh, environmental concerns. Law of the sea. Uh, law of the sea. Fishing. Fishing rights. Very important. And uh, we, I, and uh, so yes, I would say the seas, yes. Yeah, Pat, let me jump in on this. This is one of the, the State Department traditionally uses geography as one way to divide up its tasks. So you have a European bureau, you have a Latin America bureau, you have an Asian bureau, but they also have functional divisions. So there is a bureau in the State Department that worries about oceanographic affairs. Right? And there are bureaus that worry about just economic affairs writ large in the world. So I think things coming down the road that the Foreign Service should be training young officers in, how do we deal with the coming water shortage around the world? How is that going to impact on the movement of people and war and conflict? What do we do about the whole cyber mess that's out there? What is the role of Facebook in trying to promote democracy in the world? So all these kinds of issues are things that we need to be projecting out, uh, and I hope doing a better job than maybe we did in the past. For sure. Uh, one question from Jim Shepard, Chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Ambassador Rees, he asks, given the impact of COVID-19 unemployment prospects for recent college graduates, this may be an opportunity for the State Department to be more selective in attracting recruits. Does the State Department have a profile of the characteristics of successful new recruits? If so, how can the State Department identify and attract people with these characteristics into career foreign service roles? You know, uh, one of the things that's really impressed me since I've been in the foreign service is the breadth of um, backgrounds and uh, experiences that bring people to the foreign service. The I'm told that the average entering age now is, is 30. And it, that hasn't changed too much over time. So that means that people have done various other things before they come in the foreign service. There's the classic group, people who have studied political science, and I, I fit in that category, and, and maybe have an advanced degree. But um, I worked in business, uh, and also as a journalist before I came in the Foreign Service. I know, I, I, I have a very dear friend in the Foreign Service who never went to university at all. He was a fireman, he owned a, a singles bar. He became the most incredibly good management officer you can imagine and was, uh, he was a great negotiator so um so i think that people come from really uh, all kinds of backgrounds and and one of the things we're thinking about is to is how we make the foreign service even more diverse uh more uh, uh more reflective of our nation as a whole um, so I, um, so I, I think it's possible that um, there will be, the numbers actually go up and down uh, of the number of people who apply. Uh, it is, it's, it's right that after 9-11, um, there was a real surge in applications when people really felt that they wanted to do public service. And there's been quite a bit written about an, a recurrent resurgent interest in public service now. So that, that may result in more applications, uh, but we'll have to wait and see. Well, we're, uh, we're running along on time and we'll, uh, we'll break here shortly. Uh, I'll give everybody a chance to go around and, uh, and uh, provide some closing comments. But uh, Ambassador Rees, let me just uh, ask one question about the process on the, on the project. Uh, one of the, uh, the items in uh, the reading uh, about the project was the politicization uh, that uh, is impacting uh, the Foreign Service and all, all elements of, of the government. Um, what, are there any strategies or um, how, how, would, how would American diplomacy going forward depoliticize itself? What, what, uh, what sorts of things would need to be in a recommendation in terms of convincing Congress and the, the White House and, and other agencies that the State Department is not a place where political views are uh, you know, partisanship with among foreign service officers is is something that uh, is in the uh, 
in the, the list of duties. Uh, I, I wanted to save the softball question for the end. Yeah, well, I, I think a sense that um, our commitment is to the country and the oath that we take as an oath to the Constitution of the United States is something that is pretty deeply ingrained in all foreign service officers. Uh, in 37 years, I think I've served under maybe seven presidents, uh, beginning with Jimmy Carter. Uh, I've been appointed ambassador, confirmed as an ambassador under two different presidents. I have um, hosted a Democratic and a Republican president uh, at my post. And that is a normal experience for foreign service officers and for and for our ambassadors. And I think that um, that is something that is pretty, pretty deep in, in our DNA. And so among the rank and file, it's not, uh, not a, that big of an issue? No, I, d I don't think so. Okay, well, we, uh, we're up against time here. I'd, I'd like to thank everybody for participating tonight. And uh, maybe one, one last uh, grilling of, uh, of Tom and Dick, and then uh, you can provide some closing comments if you'd like, Ambassador Reese. Tom, uh, do you want to uh, tell us what, uh, what you'd like to leave us with? Well, I think um, the, the mission of the Harvard Project of, of revitalizing the Foreign Service, making it more representative of the United States, also is connected to uh, sustaining domestic support for a uh, active foreign policy. Uh, that's not an issue we really addressed tonight, but that is a concern. You have to, Americans have to want uh, to be engaged in the world, to, to be involved. Now, normally that's done through business or uh, the idea of trade and the rest, but the, 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 the America first and the sort of uh, tendency toward isolation, which might be intensified by the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic uh, is, is challenging. Those are both part of the challenges of, of maintaining a strong American foreign policy and not in a sense, one of the, the arguments of recent times has been the United States is no longer interested in world leadership of any sort. And, uh, that may, uh, we, we have to fight that or that has to be resisted, I think, if, uh, to, to in, in, as, as part of this project. Sure. I think there's a lot of articles floating around the end of globalization as a result of uh, COVID-19. So we'll have to see what happens. Ambassador Bowers, uh, click off your mic and uh, tell us what you think. Well, I think this is a wonderful project and I applaud you, Marcy, and Mark Grossman and all the other folks involved with it. So good on you and keep going. I, I just end with my NFL National Football <laughs> League analogy. What we're about here is producing the best possible team we can produce to go out on that field and play. Whether we like it or not, we're gonna have to play in this world. And we should have the most professional, most capable, most qualified team working together with all of the other elements of the US government, like the military, fiscal policy, all those other things. So the game plan, foreign policy, comes later. This is how do you put the team together? What kind of team do you have? And I applaud you, Marcy, and the rest of the team for doing that. So go get them. Well, Dick, thanks for that. Maybe we'll get the Tennessee Titans to sponsor our webinars uh, from here on out. Uh, Ambassador Reese, uh, the floor is yours once again. Well, first, let me thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you this evening. And, and uh, Ambassador Bauer, I think that your last remarks about um, putting the best team possible on the field is uh, something that we all feel. And, and I hope um, the young man who posed the question, who has passed the Foreign Service exam, and hopefully others who, will, who were listening, um, this conversation will spark in them an interest in the Foreign Service. Uh, and perhaps in serving themselves. Uh, from listening to us, I, I think you can tell that um, it's, a, it's a great career and, and, and it's very satisfying to serve your country abroad. Well, thank you, uh, thank you again. And I was uh, holding my breath that the storms on the Outer Banks of North Carolina wouldn't knock out your, uh, your internet. 
this morning I had the uh, the interesting uh, privilege of watching a webinar between uh, a retired general in Washington and somebody in the Persian Gulf, and he was the main speaker and he disappeared for about 20 minutes. And this young lady in the Persian Gulf uh, was uh, doing a great job of tap dancing through the absence of the main speaker. But we uh, we persevered, and and thanks to the uh, your local internet provider, and and thanks again, ambassadors, uh, seriously for uh, taking time out of your evening tonight to be with us and talk about uh, the American Diplomacy Project. And uh, Dick and Tom, thank you uh, for taking time out of your evening, uh, ambassador. I hope we see you in in Nashville. You're always welcome when we get back to in-person uh, events, or even just to, you know not whether you speak at the World Affairs Council or not, but come visit us in, in uh, Music City. Uh, that's it for us tonight. Again, uh, uh, we ask that uh, our friends consider making a donation to the World Affairs Council. That's how we keep the lights on and the internet service provider fed. Uh, so take a look at tnwac.org uh, slash donate, and you'll find us here. You'll find Ambassador Bowers and I next week, 2 p.m., uh, in the news review webinar. And then next week we have Global National with Carl Dean, 7 p.m. He'll be talking with uh, Dr. James Hildreth, uh, the president of Meharry Medical uh, University. Uh, he'll be talking about Nashville and uh, COVID-19. So uh, stay with us uh, for our webinars and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you again, everybody. <laughs>